From KOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Lisa Knopp, author of the new book, From Your Friend Carrie Dean, Letters from Nebraska's Death Row. I suppose my greatest hope for this book is that people will read it as a story about friendship. Carrie Dean Moore and I were different in so many ways. He was a Republican, I'm a Democrat. He was an evangelical Christian, I'm more on the progressive end. He had a 10th grade education, I have a PhD. He lived in prison, I live a free life. And and yet, and yet, we could be friends. Knopp discusses how her writing has evolved from a focus on place to a more political space in her latest book, which confronts her beliefs as a death penalty abolitionist and Christian who believes in redemption. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero, in which case, ouch. But okay, if you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more more importantly, thank you for listening. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. We'll be doing a live recording of an upcoming episode of the show at Benson Theater on September 24th, where you can see me on stage in conversation with the man himself from Mannheim Steamroller, Chip Davis. We'll be talking about his subversive approach to the music industry, the creation of Mannheim Steamroller, and how he's helped build spaces like Benson Theater for Omaha culture to flourish. Following the conversation, there will be an opportunity for audience questions and participation. Check for tickets at KIOS.org or BensonTheater.org. Today I'm talking with Dr. Lisa Knopp, who teaches creative nonfiction at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and who has written several books, including Bread, What the River Carries, and Field of Vision. Her latest book is From Your Friend, Carrie Dean, Letters from Nebraska's Death Row, which chronicles her friendship with Carrie Dean Moore, who spent 38 years on death row before his execution in 2018. Today, Knopp and I discuss how her earlier writing, which was largely focused on place, has evolved into something that encompasses the broader political questions of why and how a place becomes what it is, as well as how she came to be a death penalty abolitionist in a state where many in the largely Christian culture support capital punishment instead of the possibility of redemption. Here's our conversation. You've been writing about yourself in a lot of ways, and I learned about creative nonfiction from you in class, and we talked about some of the philosophies behind that. And I thought it's kind of interesting in your latest book because it is still – I mean, everything's always sort of filtered through you if you're writing it. But the subject seems like there's some controversy and maybe some conflict about how to approach this subject, which are people who aren't you, who are in sort of a, a situation that draws controversy, right? Was this, did, you, did this feel like a departure from your previous creative nonfiction and memoirs? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I never expected to write a book like this. Um, I, I'm kind of struggling with this because the, the whole idea of writing about another human being with, with some depth and authority is, is a scary thing to do. Um, I mean, how, how well do we know anybody, even even people we've known a long time? And this is, Carrie Dean Moore was somebody that I only knew within a particular context. And um, and then to presume to write about him. And I wanted to write about myself. Um, in part, he requested, he said, you've got to reveal both of us, not just me. And so how to write about myself in relation to him and deciding that I would use myself to reveal his story. Um, Yeah, this was controversial for me, um, very challenging. Um, There are a lot of people who probably knew him better and might have questions about my portrayal of him. Um, I'd always written about place and nature, environment, and myself in relation to them. So 
somebody who lives in, in a penitentiary um, and all of the issues related to that and whether I would even be able to do justice to those issues um, that weighed on my mind during the writing and it continues to weigh on my mind. In a, I mean, in a way that's unresolved still? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, I know um, his brother, he has a brother and sister-in-law who I'm in touch with. And, and sometimes when I'm talking with them, I'm just aware they know different things about him and they interpret things differently than I do. And, um, you know, the best I can do is, is just be really humble about this and say, um, this is my interpretation given um, the limited circumstances in which I knew him. So maybe for anyone who hasn't read the book, we could get into some of those, uh, the mm -hmm. context of Carrie Dean Moore. How did you come to know him and what was the basic, what was the drew you to him? Well, um, I had long cared about the death penalty. It was something that I wanted to see abolished in the United States. In fact, in fact, the whole world. Um, in the 80s, I'd been involved in Amnesty International, looking at um, more international issues. And um, what galvanized me was an execution, a man who was up for execution in the early 90s, um, Harold Lamont, Willie Ote, um, who had killed a woman in Omaha and got a death sentence for that and had a couple of execution dates. And I protested in both of those. And he was executed. My family and I um, protested that execution. We were at the penitentiary that night. And um, it was a pretty awful execution, um, some of the people who turned out in support of it were, quite frankly, some of the scariest people I've ever seen in my life. It was, in many ways, a lynch mob. And after the execution was over, many of us who had opposed it and who opposed the death penalty met in a church just to talk about what we were going to do next and to just mourn together. And, and there was a woman there who had known the man who was executed, and she challenged us to get to know somebody on death row so that the issue wasn't an abstraction to us, but it was one that actually had a human face. And at that time, Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty visited death row twice a year, two days each time, because they would see half the people on death row one day, the other half the next. And I signed up to go on one of those visits. I'm, I'm going to take the challenge. I'll go once. I'll have done my duty and it will be over. And I went and really enjoyed myself. I enjoyed being with the other um, abolitionists. I enjoyed meeting the men on death row. There was, there was a lot of camaraderie there. And um, I went back six months later. The first time I went, Kerry Dean Moore was not there. His death uh, sentence had been thrown out for, um, Oh, some technicalities, some language issues. And he was in Omaha being resentenced at that time. He got a new death penalty. But when I went the second time, he was there. And I just liked the man. I thought he was very sincere and humble and honest and um, very interested in the people he met. And um, he told me that the man who had been coming to see him every week for Bible study, a very, very old pastor, um, could not come anymore. He was, he was ill and couldn't drive and needed to retire and asked me if I could find somebody to replace him. And I said I would try, and we exchanged several letters. And I did find I was moving to Illinois at that point. I lived there for three years and then came back. But I was not going to visit him, but um, three people from my church at the time. Um, one of my friends came every week, and then the um, married couple who were our pastor said they would come when they could. So he had a visitation team in place, and I had fulfilled his request. But I realized that in the process, we'd exchanged several letters and became friends. And um, I had no interest in having a pen pal. And I wouldn't have chosen a friend with a death sentence who lived in a prison, but alas, we were friends and um, it continued. 
So um, it was something that I feel I just kind of chanced upon. I kind of stumbled upon this friendship with him. So 23 years later, he um, asked me to witness his execution. I, I did not. I stepped aside because there was a niece who wanted to. And then I wrote a book with his blessings about this long and very unusual and very remarkable friendship. So at the time when you met him, were you writing? Were you already on this track of becoming a creative nonfiction writer? I was. I was finishing my PhD at UNL, and I had written my first book, and that was my dissertation, um, Field of Vision, which was a collection of nature and place-based essays about Iowa and Nebraska, my two homes. And um, I had entered it in a contest, and it had placed, but had not been one of the top winners, which got publication. And at that time, I had sent it off to the University of Iowa Press, and it was accepted about that time. So I had been writing and publishing, and, and I had a book on the way. And I had taken a position at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale as an assistant professor of English, um, the first one there to teach creative nonfiction. So I was, I was definitely writing. Um, I would not have believed anybody who would have told me that someday I would write um, a memoir biography about my friendship with Carrie Dean. Why is that? It was just so unlike anything I wrote. At that time, almost everything I wrote was in some way related to place and nature. That was my passion. Understanding humans in relation to nature, nature in relation to humans, I was really interested in the idea of home, um, how it affects people to have a home, to not have a home, um, whether we make or create home, obstacles to home. I was interested in looking at my relation to home and that of other people. So I had a, you know, this was my Zelda. Um, everything Scott Fitzgerald, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote one way or the other was about his wife, Zelda Fitzgerald home and place or my Zelda. And, and that would continue um, for many, many years. So I couldn't imagine writing a book about something like this. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Lisa Knopp, author of the new book, From Your Friend, Carrie Dean, Letters from Nebraska's Death Row. What do you think about Nebraska's participation in capital punishment? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in an upcoming show. It strikes me, though, that home and place is inevitably going to be linked to things like politics and the way that yes. pe people are treated in that, you know, in what you consider home. So, I mean, there does seem to be uh, a fairly uh, tangible connection to what this book is about, even though it's maybe sort of a, a more roundabout way to get there. Was was your relationship with home and place was, I mean, is the trajectory that leads to this book something where the conditions that make home ended up being the road to letting yourself do this project? Um. Yeah, I think so. I, I and that's that's a good um observation on your part Tom. Yes. I think I was gradually um maybe working toward something that was more political, more human rights. Um I've always felt that people who were deeply at home would find some way to improve that place, to work on the quality of life there for other people. And that can be working not just on environmental issues, but housing-related issues, employment issues, um, whatever it takes for you and others to live well and safely um, in that place. So I suppose it's natural that I would eventually become interested in something like um, the criminal justice system or um, what happens to people who are incarcerated in the place that I call home. Well, and it sounds like you, it's, it's been a part of your life, right? It's not like it was a new subject mm -hmm. for you to wrap your mind right. around. So right. 
I'm curious. I mean, when we talked at the beginning here about subject being outside of yourself in a way that was different than some of what you'd written before, how did you get comfortable writing about yourself before you made that change? Well, I think in my earliest autobiographical writing, I wasn't always thinking about the people I was writing about. Um, I was more focused on myself. And um, I think over time, I started paying attention to the other people in my story. So maybe there was a movement in that way. In your earlier works, and you're writing about home, your relationship to home, Mm-hmm. It was always sort of filtering these other subjects through your relationship with them, right? And mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the type of writing you do requires a, a comfort with yourself and a comfort with how you're feeling about things and what you think about things. And I imagine uh, there's sort of just a lot of self-exploration that's part of the process. Would, is that different than the way that you approached the new book or was that always – I mean, is it kind of the same thing? It's just the scope is maybe shifting. Yeah, I, I think it's always been there. I've always used my um, my essays as a way to know myself better and the world I live in. And I think um, I don't know if I'm confessional, but I think I'm I'm pretty self revealing in any of my essays. Um, some of the nature and place based essays that were real heavily based on a place or something in nature, maybe there was less of me. Um, but some of them were pretty revealing, especially um, telling stories about home and philosophizing on that. I think I revealed a lot of myself. And in the book about Carrie Dean, um, I did reveal, for instance, some things he gave me advice about. Oh, I was just <laughs> flipping through the book and I thought, oh, I, I do tell people quite a bit about myself. Um, maybe I should have held back a little bit more. But a woman I went to high school with read the book, and she said, I really admire your transparency, the way you bring yourself into the story and, and develop yourself as a character who has, um, who has flaws and, and strengths and everything else. So um, she was, I think, a pretty careful reader, and she felt that there was a necessary balance in Revealing Carrie Dean Moore, um, his, his childhood, the, the crimes he committed, the, the people he served in prison, and then also to try to reveal, um, I don't know if it's as much about myself as him, but I think there were times I, I did show myself. That That's a way in for readers, right, where your story is an emotional connection that's maybe different from Carrie Dean's in a way that people can have different reactions, different relationships with what they're reading in a way that it seems useful, especially when we think about, I think there's probably people who are resistant to read a book about someone on death row because of preconceptions that they have. Uh, maybe it's difficult if they're not already part of an abolitionist movement to have that sort of empathy immediately. And I don't know, when you're, when you're writing a book like this, if you're aware of that, is it supposed to be something that maybe could move somebody politically in, in addition to the emotion of the story itself? Yeah, actually, there are two things going on in the book um, that could either put some readers off or hopefully change the hearts of some or, or really be embraced. And one is um, my position about the death penalty and what goes on in prisons. I believe that there should be just fair sentences and they should be served in safe, humane institutions. And then the second thing is the Christian story. Um, And I really struggled with with how to tell that. Carrie Dean Moore was pretty evangelical. Um, He understood his life through his Christian story he talked about it often. He wrote about it often. And I'm also a Christian, but I'm on a different end of the spectrum, progressive, liberal. And um, I realized that probably just about whatever I said about his Christianity or mine would probably offend some readers or put them off. And, and how to handle that. Carrie's letters, I would sometimes cut them off before he went too deep into something related to his faith. So there was enough to represent him, but not enough to maybe put readers off. 
So um, both of those were issues that I had to deal with. And I, I do hope that my personal story, showing readers how I came to this issue, showing readers what I learned from Carrie Dean Moore's example as a Christian and the ways I departed, things that we disagreed with. I hope that that makes it um, more approachable for readers who may be put off by either of those topics, the death penalty or Christianity. Surely you knew, though, you're, you're sort of wading into territory that a lot of people have strong opinions on. That's part of the appeal of a book like this, too, though, right, to be able to have these big issues and approach them with a delicacy that maybe brings people in instead of turning them away back to their ideological corners? Yes, yes. Um, realistically, I, I just don't expect people who are diehard supporters of the death penalty to read this book and to be moved by it. But but who knows? My own mother was um, a longtime supporter of the death penalty, but when I became involved in the issue and she learned more about it, she changed her mind. It, it can happen. I hope that by letting Kerry Dean Moore reveal his experience and telling people that this is somebody who confessed to his crimes, he chose to be executed. And while he was in prison, he found all kinds of ways to serve other people. I hope that that is a story that wherever people are on the spectrum, they'll have to say, okay, this is, this is a man with integrity. I may not agree with everything he says, or it may not change my mind about anything, but they would see him as somebody who lived his life with integrity, with, with the consistency, with, with deep values that he was true to. And that that would be a way to win hearts as well. It's interesting to me in the culture that we have in Nebraska, which is, it tends to be fairly religious, fairly Christian, that there are these divergent opinions on capital punishment, that the death penalty itself is kind of a litmus test for whether you believe in the possibility of redemption for people who have done something that is, I mean, like there, there's a lot of sympathy for people who are wrongfully convicted, and there's usually less sympathy for people who have committed crimes, and there's maybe less of an openness to what kind of redemption, integrity, compassion might come after that. Why, why do you think that there's so much difference? Why is it that people don't agree or don't see kind of a similar uh, possibility for redemption, even among the different sects of Christianity? Boy, that is a really good question. Um, I have met people who say they are Christians and they believe in the possibility of redemption, but they would not apply that to somebody on death row. Um some people need to be executed. I've, I've heard that. I've heard that. But that is something I don't understand. Um, I believe redemption can happen anytime, anyplace to anyone. And that informs my thinking about all kinds of matters related to the penal system, criminal justice, whatever. So I, I don't know what to say about Christian America, because it's it's a very big category. And there are many different beliefs there. And, and I can't speak for those who feel otherwise, that executing somebody, not believing in the possibility of change for them, I just can't wrap my head around that. I'm talking with Lisa Knopp, author of the new book, From Your Friend, Carrie Dean, Letters from Nebraska's Death Row, about capital punishment and the possibility of redemption. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. We have an exciting announcement here at Riverside Chats, which is that we will be doing a live recording of an upcoming episode of this show at Benston Theater on September 24th, where you can see me on stage, in conversation with the man himself from Mannheim Steamroller, Chip Davis. We'll be talking about his subversive approach to the music industry, the creation of Mannheim Steamroller, and how he's helped build spaces like Benson Theater for Omaha culture to flourish. Following the conversation, there will be an opportunity for audience participation and questions. I don't know, maybe we will, like Mr. Chip Davis himself, 
sing some Christmas songs, but make them really loud and intense. I don't know what's going to happen. It has to happen live, and hopefully you'll be there with us. Check for tickets at bensontheater.org. An evening with Chip Davis, our first live recorded Riverside Chats since the show premiered on public radio. See you September 24th. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Remember, you can check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, we'd love it if you'd give us a review. Today I'm talking with Dr. Lisa Knopp, whose latest book is From Your Friend Carrie Dean, Letters from Nebraska's Death Row, which chronicles her friendship with Carrie Dean Moore, who spent 38 years on death row before his execution in 2018. Knopp discusses her life as a death penalty abolitionist and how her writing confronts the difficult questions of redemption in a world conditioned to punish. Here is the rest of our conversation. It's interesting, though, that you came from a family where you and your mother disagreed about this. I mean, how did, how did you come to have such a strong conviction about the death penalty and about the penal system? Um, I don't know. And I have to say about my mother, I don't know if she ever really thought out the issue. It's just, yeah, of course you, you want murderers to be executed. She didn't know a lot about it. I think it was just kind of a default position that a lot of people believed in. And um, when she had stories about people I knew on death row, uh, she learned about my friendship with Carrie Dean Moore. She learned about some of the issues. I would give her facts. Um, she was she was actually kind of appalled that she had ever supported the death penalty. But that was through my personal involvement, my personal story, that she changed her mind. Um, and, of course, I hope the book works that way for some people. My coming-of-age political issue was what happened in Central America in the 70s and 80s and in Nicaragua and El Salvador. I read that and, you know, followed it in the newspaper and just, like, this is really everything I need to know about politics. This is like a microcosm here. And at that time, that's when I became involved in Amnesty International. I was horrified when I learned about what was happening in prisons there and in other parts of the world. And I suppose that is where my opposition to the death penalty developed because I saw it was being used for all kinds of reasons and none of them were good. And sometimes it was just somebody in power um, putting somebody with different opinions in prison and and making their lives miserable and executing them. I think that's where it came from. And then um, I had lived my life in Iowa, which didn't have a death penalty. And then coming to Nebraska, where there was an active one, um, Ote was the first execution since Charles Starkweather, which was a long, long time. But... Um, it looked like there were going to be more executions, and there were. There were um, Willie Ote and uh, John Jubert and Bob Williams and then Terry Dean. So it was a reality here in a way that it hadn't been for me in Iowa. And um, there was, you know, Lincoln, Capital City, there were vigils going on. Um, that's where this was the city where the executions took place. So it was um, easy to become involved in that issue in an active way, um, going to press conferences and going to vigils and protest and penitentiary visits. So some of it was just the access I had here as well. Have you found that, like your conversations with your mother, that people are generally persuadable on this issue? No. I haven't. It's very rare that I find somebody who is in a place where they would change their mind. What has pleased me is that um, <laughs> I've been going around my neighborhood giving little cards to people about the book I've written in my neighborhood, which is a very, very mixed part of Northwest Lincoln. And um, the response is interesting. I think. Um, I know of two people who are of a different political party than me that actually surprised me like, oh, oh, I'd like to know about him because he didn't fight his execution, did he? 
That's not to say that they are going to change their mind about the death penalty. They, they're just telling me that there's something about this particular case they want to learn more about. There's another person in my neighborhood um, who used to kind of hassle me politically. And he was actually the first person in this neighborhood to buy my book and read it. And I don't know if I've changed his mind, but he has said some things that has surprised me. Like, yeah, I think with Christianity, some people, some people can change. They can become better people. And I was pleased by, I didn't expect him to say that. I didn't expect him to say, or even read the book. So I am just um, happy if people give this book a chance. So it's, um, it sounds like you, you're, you're able to get a kind of empathy that treats someone on death row like a human who has the complexity that humans have, which does seem like the first step toward uh, kind of a moral questioning, right? Is that is that so? It, but it also starts from this idea that if someone is on death row, the default is to kind of look at them as a, a non-human or a monster or something along those lines. So is that kind of the first step to try to fight people's preconceptions is to see a yeah. human as a human despite the context? Yeah. And and I think if if somebody reads my book, they will have to acknowledge that Carrie Dean Moore is a complex human being with a rich inner life somebody who did awful things and has worked hard to become a better person. That's kind of the bottom line. If you read the whole book and you're open to what he's saying in the letters to our encounters with each other, you would have to walk away from it with that. You may still support the death penalty, but you would know that this was, again, a rich human being with integrity and and many good assets who the state of Nebraska executed for committing murders. Why do you think the death penalty is as politicized as it is? Like, for example, Pete Ricketts has made it kind of a personal issue for him to make sure that we still have the death penalty here in Nebraska after it had been abolished. Why, why is it such a big deal? Uh, and why does it seen as sort of this political victory? Well, um, I, Sadly, everything has politicized everything. Um, so there's that. But even if you go back 20, 30, 40 years ago, when I taught freshman comp for the first time in the, um, this would have been like 1986, 87, 80, I'd been a high school teacher and I knew what students wrote about. And I just said, we are not going to have any term papers on either abortion or the death penalty because people, most human beings are just too set with those issues. They, they can't be open to them. I think um, with the death penalty, people are afraid of crime. There are some pretty awful murders that happen in this world. And I think some people feel safer if they know there is that um, ultimate penalty the more you learn about the death penalty, the more you know that's not true. Um, but I think it appeals to people for that. This will stop crime if people know they're going to be executed, or at least they're going to have to pay a price or be punished in a very serious way. Well, my understanding, though, is if, if as far as the facts, the research on this goes, it generally hasn't been proven to be that much of a deterrent and tends to be very a very slow, expensive process, right? So, I mean, in the in the, some people try to approach this from maybe a logical sort of clinical standpoint, but even then, I don't know that the facts always support that or make a particularly persuasive case. So, it, it's rooted in a kind of uh, an emotion, an anger, a fear. You think? I think it is. Yes, and you know, Carrie told me that that summer he committed those murders. He said it crossed my mind I could get the death penalty for this. And he committed two murders, but and and he had that thought. What's your reaction to that? I I don't know what to do with that. Um, I, some of it, I think, he was in a place of such despair that um, he was he was just beyond things that might scare someone else who had more resources in their lives at that point. There, there's a defiance in that. 
I don't know if he fully, of course, of course, he fully didn't understand what the death penalty meant and that how many decades he would be on death row. He could not have understood what he was saying, but it crossed his mind. And did it cross the mind of other people that, yeah, I could get the death penalty for this. Um, I don't know. That was a very disturbing thing. When you, when you think about the, that despair and in your book, I imagine you had to confront it. I'm sure you were confronting it before you turned it into a book just through your relationship with him. But to understand that despair and then the decisions that were made and the transformation, I mean, to to get inside somebody's head or as much as you possibly can with the life that he had. I mean, what kind of impact did that have on you to know him and then to understand him? Well, honestly, I... You know, intellectually, I knew he had committed two murders, but the person who was my friend, I just, I couldn't conceive of that. Um, I just, I don't think I really fully faced what it was for him to have committed two murders until that last summer of his life. And he had always mentioned the murders, his regrets, but the last summer of his life, I said, you know, I have to write about this and you need to tell me. Um, I can read, I can read court transcripts. I can talk to people. I can read newspaper reports, but you've got to tell me what happened. And um, he did. He said, I mean, that was a long time ago. I may have forgotten some things, but I will answer any question you ask me. And um, it was, it was very hard to hear that. I also dug into a lot of um, into the Omaha World Herald archive and read everything I could about what it was like for folks in Omaha, cab drivers, both of the men he killed were cab drivers, um, Van Ness and Hegland. Um, What it was for them to know that two cab drivers had been killed and and they didn't know who had done it, who had done it. And then and then um, when Carrie Dean and his brother were arrested and what came out in some of the the testimony and the um, the trials of the two brothers, it was um, it was it was unreal. It was really unreal to think that this person that I so admired and enjoyed talking to and spending time with, and who was a part of my children's life. My son went to visit him. Um, Carrie wrote letters to both of my kids. If he called, he would chat with them for a minute. Um, To know that he had done something so horrific, there was just a disconnect. I, I never quite figured out how that happened. I know he had a very, very difficult childhood. Um, it would be a difficult childhood for anybody to survive. Um, but yeah, there, there were some things that just didn't make sense how one life could um, encompass all of this. Does that make an impact on your conception of what humans can be, of what human nature can look like? I mean, I don't know if it's something that's like, I don't know if you can articulate some of these uh these contradictions, these paradoxes maybe in your relationship with him, but is, is that something that you, you feel like you look at people and what they're capable of in a different way because of him? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know, it was that execution of Willie Ote when I saw the um, pro death penalty people there, I think that is when I faced something like, Oh, there's something really dark within humans. Um, And then, and then with Carrie Dean, um, yeah, there are depths to people. Um, I know I'm a different person than I was in my 20s and 30s. And um, maybe they, there are the extremes there of Carrie Dean more, but there, there are things about ourselves that I, I don't think we fully know. And um, it takes an extreme situation. And it also takes a lot of time to get to know somebody in depth. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Lisa Knopp, author of the new book, From Your Friend, Carrie Dean, Letters from Nebraska's Death Row. What do you think about Nebraska's participation in capital punishment? 
Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in an upcoming show. I feel like creative nonfiction in some ways is a training for that, though, to to try to figure out, at least in the case of the self for a lot of your writing or the, the self in a particular place, you probably have the tools to try to understand something that or many things that aren't immediately apparent or why behavior, how behavior results in actions and what does that mean in terms of the narratives we have for ourselves, right? Do you feel like that fed into this project? Oh, yeah. Um, students, my students, when they're writing essays in their revision groups, um, two questions I want them to answer. What's this about? What's it really about? And, and I think we can turn that question on human behavior. I do this. Um, but why? Digging down deeper. Um, creative nonfiction, the real, the real action in any essay isn't, isn't so much the what it's about, but um, how the author reflects on, on their life, the world they live in, in such a way that other people can read into that their own um, yeah, so there's it always I always digging into something and trying to reveal some universal truth about the self, the others, the world. Is it too big of a question to ask what universal truth you found in this book? Well, it's it's one Tom that you already named that one about redemption, that anything is possible. It may not be probable, but anything is possible. And also, I suppose my greatest hope for this book is that um, people will read it as a story about friendship. We live in a time that is so polarized that people are pretty much friends with other people like themselves. And Carrie Dean Moore and I were, were just different in so many ways. Um, he was a Republican. I'm a Democrat. He was an evangelical Christian. I'm more on the progressive end. He had a 10th grade education. I have a PhD. He lived in prison. I live a free life. And, and yet, and yet we could be friends. And I want people who read this book to question some of the boundaries they place on friendships and what might be possible if they open their hearts to other types of people, maybe who didn't fit their political or religious beliefs or in the same socioeconomic group, racial group, whatever. Um, we can profit. I, I believe this is a story for America at this time and place that we can really um, profit in so many ways from interacting deeply with people who are different than we are. So the redemption then, not to reduce Carrie Dean more to something like a metaphor here, but it's it's sort of in the sense of the world that we live in often can feel sort of irredeemable and dark and past the point of uh, return. But the book is kind of a, an act of hope in many ways then starting from uh, a, per, a interpersonal relationship, but one that it sounds like really it's it's about redemption on a much larger scale and your hope for it. And it seems to start with a kind of empathy for one person, but that maybe is the key to something that leads to a better world. Is, am I reading too much into that? No, you're not. And um, one thing people need to realize about Kerry Dean Moore is that once he was redeemed, he spent a lot of time helping people. In fact, I have a chapter in the book called Just Call Me Dr. Wannabe Phil. Um, Carrie loved to give advice to people. Um, he loved to be involved in people's lives, whether that was praying for people or giving advice or talking them through issues, writing letters at difficult times. Um, I know some of the, he felt really committed to helping people who were new to death row um, become acclimated and settle in. So the redemption that he models is, is um, changing the self and then just trying to be a blessing to other people. Uh, this was a man with no money, um, but he found many ways to serve people in prison and, and beyond. So when you're 
dealing with these big themes, uh, you know, maybe one of the biggest themes, right? The redemption of humanity, the redemption of society. Uh, it sounds like maybe, maybe the reason for writing a book like this then is to have that excuse to give yourself that kind of hope that the book uh, imbues in its reader or at least that you wanted it to imbue in the reader who is open to having it imbued. So, I mean, was, was the, your, your, uh, the sort of mental place that you were in when you decided to write this book was in some ways you, was it in some ways you wanting to confront these things, wanting to come to a positive conclusion and sort of manifesting it through having a book that gives people a reason to feel that way too? Um, well, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but, but I, I do think you're right. Um, that maybe I wasn't aware of it, but wanting to write a book that would bring about positive change. Um, certainly I feel that way after it, but going into it, um, yeah. And, and I will say that writing this book, I kind of fell in love with the idea of doing advocacy writing in creative nonfiction, like finding an issue you care about, giving it a human face and telling that story in such a way that people will think about that subject differently. Um, Maybe like, not like my mom, you know, the ideas, yeah, everybody supports the death penalty, but, but hearing personal stories, hearing, hearing real facts and then as she did being able to change her mind about it. So um, yeah, I like this idea of manifesting. Um, What might this book manifest in those who read it? I think my dream reader isn't so much somebody who's for or against the death penalty, but it's just somebody who says, "I, I need to take some action on this. I think I might write to my state Senator or, um, make a donation to an organization that is trying to bring about fair sentencing or helping incarcerated people or their families or um, somebody who takes some action. That's my ideal reader. So do you see this then as a turning point in subjects for future books or essays that you might be writing next? I think, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, I'm casting around for another subject that would allow me to do some issue-related writing. And, and I have a big list. I need to narrow it down. I'm, I'm still writing personal autobiographical essays, but I've been really interested in housing-related issues, um, homelessness, um, not just not spiritual homelessness, but physical homelessness, people not being able to afford a decent place to live or any place to live for that matter. Um, I'm pretty interested in that. That's one that keeps bubbling up to the top. And I like that subject because there are many different ways to approach it. Um, I follow things in the news and I'm just always jotting down possibilities for another book, kind of in this vein. I, I don't think... Will there be a strong personality at the center of it like Carrie Dean Moore? I, I don't know. I, I haven't found that person yet, but um, I would love to find a person through whom I could filter an issue. It's interesting, too, because as we talk about this, I think back on your earlier writing uh, and place-based writing and nature-based writing, it it can accomplish a lot of the same things that it seems like a lot of people struggle with, which is a difficulty to connect with the natural world, to connect with ecosystems, mm-hmm. particularly in this time of climate collapse, climate change uh, on a you know scary scale. It seems like what you were right. doing before, maybe I don't know if it was tied directly to that, but also there is a little bit of an advocacy to it and a needed one. Yeah. And um Most of my nature writing, place-based writing, was done before climate change became a really heated topic. Um, So it was it was there along the edges. Um, And what I was mostly after was was just for people to know the place they came from, to know 
um, who else called that home, not just people, but other organisms to learn the names of the things there that, that lived there, um, not just a tree, but a bur oak, um, learn the names of things, learning the natural history of the place, all of that, that I think helps you to fall in love with the place. And when you fall in love with the place, you're committed to taking care of it. Um, again, I stopped, I had a shift in my writing before climate change became such a weighty issue. And I don't think I could ever write about climate change because the way a lot of people write about it, um, I actually find it off-putting. Um, it, it can be kind of cliche and um, alarmist in ways that might be more off-putting than helpful. And I've given thought to how one can get around that. And the only thing I can think of, again, is to tell the climate change story through one person. Uh, I don't know who that person would be, but maybe somebody who's lived a long time and has noticed big changes. And um, I don't know, I'm kind of at a loss how to write about climate change. I think that's a very, and even, I don't even like to call it climate change. I call it, I like to call it global climate disruption. Um, Because some people like changing a change in the climate. Some people like a warmer climate, but global climate disruption, I think is, um, is more direct and it covers all the very various kinds of climate crises we see at this point. Yes. And, you know, I, I talk about it a lot in the show. I'm not asking you to solve how we talk about it, how we get people to have empathy for it. But I think your overall goal of engagement in a kind of empathy and believing in redemption, these seem like ideas that we really could use more of in a way that is effective uh, and not cliche like you're talking about. So I really appreciate that you are doing this and that I got a chance to pick your brain about this book and about your your writing career here today. This has been great talking to you. Well, you've asked very challenging questions, Tom. I'll be thinking of the thinking of probably what I should have said. <laughs> yeah, it was great to talk to you. Great to reconnect a little bit here. Well, thank you so much and good evening. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find a backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.